So, Stuart, if we were to leave our listeners today with one a simple, compelling story that would change the way they think about work or the way they go to work, what would it be? The story I would go to is the fall of the Berlin Wall. I was there as a reporter for ITN back in 89. And the reason it's so powerful, it tells you two big things. Firstly, the power of narrative. When the story changes, when people's story about uh, what's going on changes, reality follows as sure as night follows day. And the second thing is you can't rely on power relationships alone. You have to build trust. Once trust is no longer there, the minute your power looks weaker, you've lost it. Hello, our guest today is Stuart Maester, an expert in bringing the art of storytelling to business. Stuart is chief storyteller and founder of leadership consultancy Strategic Narrative and is writing a book for The Economist about business relationships called Choose Trust. As a former BBC and ITN reporter, he knows a thing or two about the importance of journalistic skills in organisations, especially the part they play in clarity, leadership and alignment. I'm Robert Diggings, and this is Highly Relational, the podcast about creating, leading and developing great teams at work, along with all the joys and perils of human collaboration. If you're a leader, a manager, an HR professional, a coach, consultant or trainer, you'll find real value here about how to elevate your work as the series unfolds. So story, we love reading them and watching them, but perhaps less obviously, our lives are made up of them. In this conversation, Stuart explains why the tune for business isn't classical anymore, it's jazz, how clarity is the key to achieving results together, and why a story, no matter how powerful, is nothing without making it true. If your business hasn't got its story straight, your employees don't know why they're there, and no one can say where they're going or how, it's simply not possible for people to do their best work or for your business to thrive. So leaders... Teams and businesses need to get much better at creating and telling compelling stories, not just for themselves, but for the benefit of all. Stuart obviously thinks so, but I began by asking him if he wasn't slightly over-egging it. Is story really that important to success at work? It's not the only answer. There are many answers. But I think the key point I want to make is this. I go to a book by Yuval Harari called Sapiens, which many people will have read. I don't know if you've read it. It's I have. A, it's a fantastic book, isn't it? I'm a big fan of his. Right. So the core idea there is, is, is this, that the only thing that separated us, the homo sapiens, from a bunch of chimpanzees on the plane, you know, tens of thousands of years ago, we all were doing the same things as monkeys, was story. Why is that? Because suddenly, for some reason, Homo sapiens developed the ability to capture some sense of the future, tell a story of what might happen, tell a story of the past, and tell a story of the present, interpret the world, in other words, through a story. And that's the foundation of everything, of of everything we are and do today. That's how fundamental story is. And that goes not just for Homo sapiens, but it goes for your business, for you as an individual. What is the story of your organization or your team? 
what is the fundamental story that we have, the strategic narrative, as I call it? And if we're all clear on that, then that will define the reality of everything else we do. If we're unclear on it, then we're all pointing in different directions. I mean, the beautiful thing about um, Harari's work is that he says that is actually why we are the dominant species on the planet. Our ability to not only make up extraordinary stories, but to then believe them as if they were the truth. Well, exactly. And the one I the piece I love in there, which really affirms what you just said, is is why did Europe suddenly dominate the world? Why did Europe, you know, we were smaller than China and India and Middle East. They were cleverer than us. They did more. And he said, the reason? Credit. What is credit? For some reason, unlike all the other cultures, in places like the London stock exchanges and some of the coffee shops and in also in, in other parts of Europe, they developed this concept that I could tell you a story of the future which didn't exist. I'm going to go and conquer some strange land and find gold. On the base of only that story, with no reality at all, you will extend to me credit. Now, your credit, might you might be a shipbuilder, and you'll say, okay, I'll build a ship for you, but I, I need money. You then go to someone who's got money. On the basis of your story, he gives money to the shipbuilder and expects, obviously, a massive return back when you find all this gold. And you get your ship built, you go off and you conquer the world. It's a total fiction. And he even says every single organization, every the biggest companies in the world are nothing more than a story. All the stuff they have, the offices, the factories, the people and stuff, are all based on a, on a story, the, a founder's story, often a foundational story that they all buy into and that hangs them together. And without that story, you've just got a bunch of people doing stuff. But here's the problem. We don't see it that way. So storytellers like you see it that way. You even say you are the chief storyteller of your business. Terrific. But most of us don't think of leadership as being a storytelling skill. So how do we make that transition from leadership being something about, you know, getting the best from people to actually the idea that leaders are simply telling compelling, engaging stories? Well, I think what it's interesting because I think what's got in the wire are a lot of buzzwords, to be honest. So everyone talks about what's our vision, what's our mission, what's our purpose, what are our values, all of which are really important things. But for me, they are, they are parts of the overall narrative. They're elements in the narrative. Of course, you do need a vision of the future. But I would call that an, a story of the future because so much of that stuff, because it's, it becomes consultancy bollocks, right? It becomes gabble becomes lots of words that fit together and sound impressive but mean nothing at all to anyone. And so they don't change the world in any way. A great example, I won't quote the company, I won't even quote what they said, but a colleague of mine was working in one of the, one of the big four county firms and they proudly announced the brand new strap line, the new vision of what we were here to do. And they got the whole company together and it was fantastic. They paid millions to develop this thing. I wish they'd paid me. They could have paid me a lot less and I'd have come up with something much better, but they didn't. And um, my colleague said, went over to the managing partner who'd just done this big and it was his ego was the size of a planet. Everyone's saying, what a brilliant job. Of course they were. What else are they going to say? So the top guy. And um, he said, this is fantastic. I love this. Just explain to me, what should I do differently tomorrow than I do today as a result of this new vision that we've got, this new strap line. And the guy said, well, interpret that for yourself. It's up to you to think what that means. He said, great, we've now got 300,000 different strategies in this business because everyone's going to interpret it differently. So the point about story is it's got to be understood. People, it needs to land, it needs to be simple, clear, 
It's got to have impact. It's got to be clear. What does that mean for me? How does that change what I do? How does that define the value that I'm bringing to the world or that we're bringing as a team or as a company to the world? It's got a really, it's hard edge stuff. It's not soft, fluffy stuff. It's the hard edge, the cutting edge of what you're doing. And uh, there's a a terrific story about Brené Brown um, when she's, I think, doing some really uh, big bit of work at the beginning of her, um, you know, amazing uh, career and the TED Talk that she did. It may have actually been her first TED Talk where she was being interviewed about it and somebody said, well, what are you? And she said, I'm, you know, I'm a researcher and, uh, you know, kind of expressed it as she thought. And they went, well, you're a storyteller. And she, her reaction to that initially was, oh, that's not very good. (laughs) It's like, really, you're going to position me as a storyteller. So how do we elevate? How do people like you who really, really are passionate about this elevate the notion of being a storyteller as being most important and, and, and getting leaders to actually see themselves and maybe even speak of themselves as storytellers rather than leaders? Blimey, if I, knew, I wish I knew the answer. My business would be a lot bigger. But um, the truth is that when you have a conversation like this, it becomes clear to people, which is why I love being on there. Thank you for inviting me onto your podcast because I'm, I can bang on about this all day long. I'd actually throw it back at you, Robert, because you I know you believe in this stuff and you're working with teams and with organisations. When you raise this as an issue, what's the reaction you get from people? Again, it's a, it's like that's nice to have. It's like um, our comms director does story mm. and we tell stories to our stakeholders. And yes, we might have some internal stories that we tell to our business, but but the the strategy of our business isn't a story. Making that connection. So my my experience is that senior execs get that story is important, but they don't get that, that, as you said earlier, that their very business is just a story. I don't mean just in a pejorative sense. I mean, it it is a story and, and that's how key it is. Well, you know, that's why I talk about narrative rather than story. And you're right, because a lot of people see storytelling as just a technique. We need to be better at telling stories in order to win more business or in order to convince people to work, to be engaged. And it's a technique, it's a tool to achieve some end. It's not as fundamental as we're discussing here today. Now, if you look at politicians, it's really interesting. If you look at leaders of countries, they talk a lot about narrative. What is the narrative we're developing in order for people to, to buy and to trust us, to vote for us if they vote, or even if they're just leading, you know, if you're China? Well, and they the talk ne- about being on message, which is another way of saying being on, on the story, on the predetermined shtick that we're they telling do. today. I, I'm a little bit nervous about message. And well, I'll tell you why. I've, yeah, I've, I've, I spent many years media training people, working in comms with PR people, comms people, and they say we've got to be on message. What is the message? And here's the thing. Here's a fundamental idea for me. Once upon a time, 30 years ago, when you and I were starting out in business, business was classical music. What I mean by that was you could coordinate the message. You could decide a message. You'd write the score, if you like, and you expected everyone to play the instruments on cue. They all played in line with the message. If they deviated from that, you could... And people talk about controlling the message right? How do we control the message? And I earned a lot of money helping people control, decide a message and then decide how to stick to it, right? Business is now jazz. It's not classical music anymore because of all the reasons we know, because of social media, because because everything's out there. And so this what, is terrific because it links to um, the conversation I had with Neil Malarkey, who would say it's improv. It's improv jazz. Right, beautiful. Yeah. And I agree. With, to, with one exception, which is that the thing about 
jazz is if you, I've just been to a jazz festival, right? So you, people are riffing in their own way on stuff. They're improvising, but they're doing it to a tune. There is a tune. There's a core tune. that. So that's why one jazz piece sounds different from another jazz. And if different bands play the same jazz piece, you know it's that piece, even though they're doing it in their own way. So you want your people, your team, to riff in their own way, bring their personality, bring their skills, bring their different types, personality characteristics to the party. But you want them to have a tune that they're riffing to. And that is not pure improv, in my view. The tune is the narrative, the strategic narrative. And that tune stays constant, even as change means that what we do, the tactics we deploy change all the time. But there should be some core, constant tunes that you're playing that people come back to. Great. And we're going to look at those things uh, as, as this conversation unfolds. But I want to take you back to where you cut your teeth on the idea of the power of story, because you were a broadcast journalist. You've worked for numerous big broadcasting, big news outlets, the BBC, ITN, Sky. What was that experience like of learning the art of storytelling as a journalist? Do you know, I think everything I've ever done, Robert, has been broadcast journalism. I've spent 30 years now working with companies. I've not been on TV or on radio for 30 years. But everything I do is exactly the same. And here's why. The fundamental skill of a broadcaster, of a radio reporter or a TV reporter, is to take complexity and very, very, very quickly decide the three or four most important things that are going on that you need to tell the audience that you're reporting to. And you've got to really quickly decide what's the angle here? What's the top line? What's the second line? What's the third line? What's the fourth line? So taking complexity and simplifying it for your audience. And I worked for different broadcasts. So I had different types of audiences who cared about different things. I also worked for independent radio news, which was for commercial radio stations. People listening to music being interrupted by the news. You've, got, you've probably got three sentences you can tell them about a story. Working on the world at 1 p.m. on the BBC, you've got three minutes right? So you're packaging the same information differently. That skill of taking complexity and deciding very quickly what's the most important thing here is something that served me well. And I've realized working both in my business career and even when I was a reporter, interviewing really important people, government ministers, prime ministers, chief execs, chair, chairman, whatever, whoever they happen to be, senior people, that they knew so much, they struggled to get to the key things they needed to talk about that cut through to the audience they were trying to reach. And that's really what I've done most of my life. And that was the skill I developed then. And it's an amazing skill to have, actually, I, I realised when I went into business. So tell, me, tell us a bit about the process. How do you do that? The way I think about this is that story enables us to create order out of chaos, which is your, your word for complexity. Yeah. And it creates meaning without story, we have no meaning. So narrative creates meaning, both, you know, as for me as an individual, even the idea of who I am is a story and what is what I believe is possible in the world is a story. But for businesses and yeah. for the people that you interviewed and in your role as a journalist trying to go, well, there's all this information about this thing that the government is doing, but here, let me tell you what you need to know in the three minutes that I've got. How do you do it? Right. Well, it's it, it's great. It's, it's what you just called order from chaos. I, I love, and it's the, I call it the noise to signal ratio. You know, there's a load of noise. We've got to get the signal. The starting point is, listen to what you just said there. If I listen to what you just said there, Robert, you've answered the question in your question. Okay. You said, if I'm broadcasting, I need, I've, I've been to an hour and a half press conference of the government. I've got a few minutes to explain what matters to you, my listener. 
So the starting point for me is who are you, my listener? Who are you? What do you care about? And I do the same with individuals. If I'm coaching, for example, executives, leaders, salespeople, or if I'm consulting with a business and helping them develop a narrative or they've written a you know, they've got, they've got a 50 slide strategy. That's our strategy. We've got a strategy, guys. We've got 50 slides in it. What does it means nothing. The starting point is who are they? Who are the people we need to tell, we need to understand this stuff? And really spending time identifying who they are and what they care about is my starting point with everyone. Start with them, not you. It's the same if you're selling. It's what salespeople say. Who, what do the people we're selling to care about? What is value to them? Why do they engage with what we're about to tell them? Why should they give a monkeys what I'm about to say? And if you're doing broadcast journalism, I'm, I'm doing news, and I say I'm interrupting your music, I better be interesting quickly. Otherwise, you're going to switch station, right? So I've got to get to the point quickly. And the same applies in everything that we do. So... Who are they? What do they care about? How do I grab their attention? How do I land my story with those people and then work backwards? What do I care about? What is the substance I'm trying to say? And I really, the, the most powerful question often is, what makes us special, different, or great? What is it that, and it's usually the how we do what we do. So whether that's an organization or an individual, if I was to work with you on your narrative, like Robert Diggins' narrative, you know, what, what's my strategic narrative? What, what do I want people to say about me when I'm not in the room? Which is the most, is a great question, right? That's, that's your reputation. I'd be happy if they were just talking about me, Stuart. <laughs> <laughs> They'll say lovely things. But we can things, improve on that, you. can't we? We can improve on them just talking about just me to, and saying something that could be helpful or but, useful or kind or... But you know what? It's a great point, actually. Let's get them talking about you at least. Let's make yourself interesting enough. They're talking about you, right? Yeah. You know, if you're a law firm, getting people to talk about you, say they're, they're great lawyers. I mean, so is everyone else. So what? Right? What's special? And it's often not what you do. It's how you do it. It's what's it like to work with me as an individual, us as a company or us as a business or, or us as a team? What does it feel like? Well, how do we do this stuff? And what, what's great about that? And let's really describe that so people can, the people who like that way of working want to choose us. So let's, let's um, transition from the idea of you being a journalist and telling stories that, like you said, you've been to a press conference, lots of facts, lots of information, some of it possibly spun and you're uh, processing that, you're thinking about how to make what you're going to say as relevant as possible to the people that are going to be listening. But in a, if we move to your work now as a consultant and your business um, strategic narrative, it's slightly different, isn't it? Because the story, I can imagine that a senior team, an exec team or an MD or a CEO sits down with a blank sheet of paper and it's like, well, what is the, where do I start? What, how do I even start telling a story? And how do I do it with integrity rather than just the story that I you know, would like to think everybody thinks about us or there's a gap, isn't there? How do you, how do you help a, a, an individual or a team cross that gap? There's exploration that's involved, of course, like with any good consultancy. You don't just start and say, here's the answer. What I like to do is actually speak to people in the team, the people they serve, their customers, or, or if it's internal, let's say it's an internal team that's serving the front line, the people that they serve, and, and really try and understand. I ask them very simple questions. You know, what do you care about? What, do you, what matters to you? What does value look like? How do these team work? How do this business work? What does it feel like? What Just tell me what you think they do. 
it's really simple questions like that. You get 20 different answers. It's incredible. And you end up with what I call hotspots. You end up with some themes that emerge consistently. And then you're trying, you play that back and you're trying to get the, the outcome of this. What we're trying to get to is one thing, clarity. Clarity is the outcome because so often people have so much information in their head. There's so much change. There's so much coming at them that they're not clear. And the people that are working for them or with them are not clear on what it is that they're trying to achieve. So we're trying to gain clarity from this noise. And then it's a process of really identifying what's most important. It's that journalistic process of distilling it down into the essence, the key things that matter, that are going to drive things forward and going to land with the people that they need to land with. And the second thing, but if I may, is what's true. And this this actually comes back to something you said earlier. Story, we, we tell people stories. It's all soft and fluffy. We're convincing people. You've got to start with the truth. Sometimes people come up with a great narrative and you, and you say, is that true? Is that really like that? Well, I mean... We, we aspire to be like that. So the question is, you're either going to be like that, that's what that's the vision of where you're going to go and you're going to make this true. So how are we going to make this true? Or you're not. it's not true and you shouldn't say it because people find that out very quickly, like the Berlin Wall, right? So, you know, we suddenly realised that the whole thing was built on cards. So making it true, and this comes back to the, this comes to the other business I'm involved with, Mutual Value, where we're writing a book on trust. Because what most stories, what most narrative is designed to do fundamentally, is to build trust. Nothing works without trust. You're trying to get customers to trust you enough to choose you as their suppliers or their product or service. You're trying to get your team to choose to put in that discretionary amount of work, not simply turn up for work, etc. And the way you do that is build trust. If they trust in you, in the organization, they trust each other, then there's a lot of discretionary choice that will be made in your favor. And that's a critical part of making the story true. Fantastic. I want to come back to trust, but let's just stay with clarity for the moment because that is super interesting. And how do you know or how can somebody listening to this know that they have found clarity? Wow. What a big question. Because a... I know I know from uh, the research that we've done that you're, you're part of your the strategic narrative message, the ethos, the process is about the importance of clarity to teams and leadership. But you know, I'm, I might say, well, I am clear, but of course I might not be. So what are the, what are the, the well, ways of knowing whether we've arrived at, uh, at the holy grail uh, utter clarity? clarity. It's, utter like, clarity. it's like, uh, you know, achieving a higher level of consciousness, you know. I don't think you ever arrive at any of these things. I don't think in anything we do in business or in life, frankly, Robert, is, there's a destination. You don't arrive at anything. There's just a journey where you're getting clearer. i tell you what, what I, I feel is that if you start by understanding that most people are in a fog or they're, or they're pointing in different directions. Let me, let me give a quick analogy. Two aeroplanes take off from the same runway, okay, and they're one degree apart. They're, both, they're, they're only one degree apart at the start, but they carry on with that course. Where do they end up, right? Different continents probably. So the beginning of my work is so often just to uncover the lack of clarity. <laughs> I've worked with boards. I work with a board. I can quote so many boards. And I ask them all these simple questions. As simple as, what do you do? What do you sell? What do people buy from you? What do you think that, why do you think they buy from you? Or really simple, simple, simple questions. This is the board of an organization. And you get wildly divergent answers of what they think is important, 
you get some crossover, of course you do. But while, you know, there's a lot of significant divergence. So if we can get everyone on the same, I say we're going to get everyone on the same page, we have to write the page. We need a page that everyone's on. So let's write the page. And then the next work is to make that consistently true and constantly come back to it and change it over time. The so so you're really saying that clarity isn't just about clarity of the message, of the story. It is actually about the collective, the team that's in charge of the business or in, in charge of an element of the business being aligned to that story is part of what you would call clarity. Yeah, my, my three words in strategic narrative are clarity, leadership and alignment. Exactly as you say, it's not me, the leader, being clear. It's we're all clear. Each individual is clear. And it's clear what this means for them. What what difference does this make to the job I do tomorrow? And so clarity is for everyone. If if people don't, if you're clear, but no one else is clear, there is no clarity. It's just fog again. So let's now move on to trust. Mm-hmm. You've said that trust is, uh, without trust, you have nothing. I kind of see trust as a as an output. How do you work on trust? What is How do you approach the trust-building problem. Okay. Well, uh, let me just first of all plug the fact that my, myself and my colleague Kevin Vaughan Smith are writing a book for The Economist on trust called Choose Trust. And in fact, we have a podcast called Choose Trust. And the reason that we've called it that is that trust is a conscious choice. Building trust, making trust a fundamental value, the way we do things, it's not an output in my view. It's a, it's kind of the it's the intel inside to way you work is a conscious choice. It needs to be designed and consciously reviewed. And this is where it's a massive crossover with your work on collaboration and teams. But let me go back a step, if I may, because I think this is a fundamental idea. There are two, most people in their working lives focus on what we're doing, the, 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 the thing that we're doing together, the task we're developing together, and maybe even the costs involved, as it were, the technical aspects of delivery. But there are two dimensions to how effective you are as a team. One is what you do and how good you are at it. But the other is the relationships of those involved in the delivery, the way they work together, and the way indeed they work with clients or with other members of their organization. Those relations. Now, that second dimension is not given enough attention. And that's where the trust-based relationship building needs to take place. And the reason it's not given enough direction, is, let me give you an example. I pitch to your job, right? I say, we're going to do this, 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 and this for you, Robert, and it's going to cost you this, this, this much. What I don't often do in my pitch is how we work, how we need to work together for this to be successful. So it's a conscious choice and we've got a, a formula to design trust with. So what I was, uh, I love what you've said and I, and, I, and, and I understand how you're deconstructing it. The reason why I said that I see trust as an output is because I see it a bit like health. So if, if, if we want to be healthy, it doesn't help by telling someone to be healthy. No. It, it's like, that, that's kind of what I was getting at. It's yeah. like, yes, we want trust, but we can't in the way we might want health, but you can't work on health in and of itself. It needs to be unpacked. So we can look at our, how much rest we're getting. We can look at how much sleep we're getting. We can look at what we're consuming, what we're eating. We can look at how much um, exercise we're doing or, or, or whatever. It's like, and so is that, if that analogy works for you, yeah. can you paint a picture of what the elements of trust are? 100%. So, well, I would call that a dimension. It's a dimension of everything we do. It's a key strand of, our, of everything we do, working together, living together, you know, loving each other. Mm. It's all it's like health is, mm. right? So, let's, so we, we developed a formula for trust. So the first thing to do is define what is trust. 
What do I mean? So I want to be, I, I mean, again, it's one of those same issues. You say to people, you need to build trust. Well, I, people trust me. And in fact, PwC did some great research recently in the last few months where they looked at the amount leaders of businesses felt they were trusted by their customers and the amount customers actually trusted businesses. And there was a 57-point gap. But leaders thought, oh, everyone trusts us. No, they don't. As an aside, the PwC uh, Trust Survey has just come out for 2023, and I saw on LinkedIn that Dr. John uh, Blakey, who's, um, who runs an organisation called The Trusted Executive, uh, has posted that with some of the key um, oh. kind of outputs. So it, it's a yearly thing that PwC do, and um, you're absolutely right. There is a, uh, it's highlighting again that there's a trust issue in, or- in organisations. I will repost it. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate that. So what is trust? Okay, if I'm going to consciously design trust, I need to know what it is. And I can define it for you right now in our, our model. There are three C's that, uh, that define trust. The first, it won't surprise you, no, given what we discussed earlier, for me, for us, is clarity. What do I mean by clarity between us? Let me give you an example. You and I do some work together. I, if, if there's not clarity between us about what we're trying, what our ambition is in this piece of work that we're doing, and it's about clarity of ambition, what we're trying to achieve, then you do a brilliant piece of work for me, but it wasn't what I expected. It took longer. It cost more. It wasn't didn't quite meet the needs I thought. Next time I think, oh god, I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to really sit on top of Robert for this because I don't trust him so much. He didn't get what I was wanted because there was no clarity. So there's a whole bunch of stuff around clarity. The second dimension is character, the behaviors that we demonstrate. And we define those behaviors in our model. So the way in which the behaviors we consistently demonstrate will either build or destroy trust. And they're most evident when there's a problem when there's a challenge. How do you deal with challenging situations together that builds trust as opposed to destroys trust? And the third dimension is capability. What is the, cap- not capability in terms of technical capability to deliver a, a solution or product or whatever, but capability of building a high trust relationship. And there's a way of managing that through governance of the relationship, for example, making sure that we celebrate the relationship. And then we're constantly reviewing, not are we doing what we said we do in terms of delivery, which of course you do need to do in anything you do in work, but is that are we sticking to the principles of our relationship that we agreed? Are we behaving in ways that we agreed were the right ways to behave? And so those, the process side of, of, of what we're doing together. Exactly. It's conscious management of the relationship, not simply of the delivery. So let's link this back to story, which is um, our, our main reason for talking to you today. Uh, and you, you've, it's fantastic you're writing a book, Choose Trust, uh, for The Economist. You have a podcast called that, and you have a business called Mutual Value that is about that. How does that link to story? There's a very hard wide link. The strategic narrative is all the things we've discussed so far. It's the core narrative of our organization or of our strategy. It's the way we explain what we're going to do and, and, and how we're going to do it. The trust dimension is how we make it true. It's how we make it true, not what necessarily what we're going to do. It's the ways in which we're going to work together to deliver this at this this narrative. And what what is the it there then? Making it true, making so making we, what true? So the, the the story we're telling needs to needs to be true. We need to now do something about it. We need to be consistent in our behaviours in the way in which we act in order to continually build trust with the people we're trying to build this story with. So this is this is the whole thing about that the story, if it isn't made true, is meaningless or, or or possibly even counterproductive. Correct. I, this, I'm going to say something now that anyone listening 
in any organization will nod vigorously at. So often, warm words are not turned into real behaviors. Those value statements at head office on the wall, they're just words in so many cases. They're not lived on a daily basis. The strategy, the vision, the mission. The thing we're trying to do is to turn those warm words into real behavior. Okay, so I could go off on one now because this... The, the issue that I have around a lot of this is that the problem is that, that the mission statement or the values are superficial. They are another layer of facade that's being put on the business rather than anything that has any depth or in, perhaps in our language that we've been talking about uh, now, is a, it, it, it doesn't have truth. It isn't really deeply true. Yeah, well, you're, what you're saying is, that those words should have resonance, they should have power, but they're not given power. They should have. So, you know, the values you create, let's take values as one component of what we're discussing. Values should describe your culture. They should describe how we do what we do, what's really the way in which we turn up, what's really important to us in the way in how we do. So you might have a strategy or a vision or a mission that says this is what we're going to do, but the values is how we're going to do it, right? Which is defines your culture. So often, not true. That's so. The point is not that the words aren't great words; is that people don't put the power behind them. They should put behind them. So, if somebody's um, listening listening to to our conversation today, you, you've covered uh, uh, all of these things: trust, clarity, um, storytelling, the importance of living it, and um, people being able to see that it is that it is true and that it is actually happening. It's not just a an idea or yeah. a, an aspiration even. What do you think is the most difficult thing to of all of that for the teams that you work with to get, to wrestle with? Where, where is the bang for the buck if somebody is going to take what you've said seriously and really get, get into it, really pursue it? Well, there are two different questions there. So what's the biggest challenge? The challenge is, is this thing we are just discussing is making it true is being consistent and making it true even in difficult circumstances. So I've got a report that I've worked with a lot of different businesses on strategic narrative, either about the business as a whole or a particular product or a service or a team or an individual. I've worked with individuals where I'm helping them develop what their, their own narrative is. And they say, great, I love this, I love this. And then the first time they come up against a challenge or problem, they revert to their old way of being or the, or the things that are not consistent with that story because that's what they do. So consistency and sticking to, the, to what you say you're going to be and do is the biggest challenge I think people have. And the bang for the buck is when people, when organisations get this right, the bang for the buck is you build high levels of trust with customers, with, with your team, with your colleagues. They buy into it. You get discretionary effort from people. You get discretionary choice by customers who want to work with you more. You know, all the research shows customers, clients of professional firms, for example, will work more with the people they trust, the people they trust. So the bang for the buck is all the, all the hard measures of performance go up if you get this stuff right. And they go down if you don't. But the challenge is making the warm words true. And that takes courage in, in my experience because we are all great natural storytellers, whether we acknowledge that or not, because everything is, I, yeah. I, I would sign up to the idea that everything is story. But telling a story that's spun or that's got some truth but is 
of, has a veneer of bullshit yeah. is just so human. Well, have you ever seen any of those recently with any big companies when you look at their taglines? Any bullshit factor in anything you've seen? Yeah, well, tons. Yeah, ton. yeah. Tons. Because, but, but, because, Making because the world the a better place. Courage, We're here to make the world a better place. But isn't that, for I see that as a lack of courage to, to effectively say what's actually real. 100%. And that's why this stuff's tough, hard-edged. It's it needs to be challenged. You know, so the thing I do as a, as a former journalist with people, which doesn't work with everyone well, is I challenge like crazy. I will not accept the bullshit. I say, is that true? Do you mean that? I I was told this by someone else, which completely says what you've just said is complete nonsense. It's bollocks what you've just said. So tell me that you're, you're going to be make it true in future. So really challenging things in a tough way so that you get to the raw essence is so important. But there are so many, surely. So, okay, let me just challenge that. So are there not numerous organisations where things are going so badly wrong that a CEO or someone on the senior team could say to you, Stuart, if we tell the truth, we're fucked? Yeah. And what do you say then? Is, is the truth the answer? And will it be appreciated in, in, in the post-truth world that we seem to be living living in or is there a balance to be had between what's actually true and what's palatable or even acceptable well i think that that's a very difficult answer to answer simply because it's so circumstance specific and the reason i say that is not oh here we go sudden compromise on you know he says it's all got to be true and then suddenly no because you're, you're absolutely right i mean again i work with government ministers in this exact situation where there's a certain amount they can tell and there's a certain amount that can't be told for good, solid reasons, okay? So you're, you're telling, in that case, you're telling truth, but you're not telling the whole truth in some cases because there are reasons to... Now, what I would say in that situation is this truth is going to come out, so it's a question of deciding how you release that confidential information that, that may be true but needs to be... But there sometimes needs to be management of core issues because... You can't just say, we're going to tell the world everything at all times because I don't think that works. But but I do think you need to decide very, very harshly what, you know, if you don't tell them this and it comes out later because it will, how is that going to land? Well, I mean, and a fantastic recent example is the downfall of Boris Johnson. Who, Correct. Wh- why did, you know... No, but that's if- nonsense. You know, I did, that's a great example, actually. Well, I, if I was advising, I'd have said, be absolutely truth and balls in. Be true to yourself as a person. Why did Boris Johnson get so popular? Because he, to- he appeared to tell the unvarnished, he just appeared to be himself and just said whatever came into his head. And it, wasn't, it was more contrived than that, of course, but he appeared to be that way. Now... When people said you had a party, if you're Boris Johnson, you can get away with saying, yeah, we did. You know what? We worked bloody hard. We were working 24 hours a day. Everyone's probably, you know, we try so hard to conform, but we we failed a couple of times. Yes, we did. You know, I'm really sorry, but we just did. Now, because he, I'm not saying he should have done it. I'm just saying having done that, to try and pretend you didn't, or I was told something else, you know, we were all exhausted. We, we, you don't know how hard we work for you guys. We're working twenty hours a day. Everyone was working twenty hours a day, and they sat in the garden, had a glass of wine. Shoot but even us. now, he can't tell us the truth. He's still says, "My mind, I, it's like no. I don't understand this." He could have, he, he could still be prime minister, in, in my view, if he had been able to get his head round being honest about what happened. But even now, he's still saying that it, it, it is, it didn't happen. It's all been made up. It's a conspiracy. They're out to get me. 
Yeah, I know. And it's such nonsense. And and he's he's become delusional. So help help us make that connection for somebody listening to this uh, thinking not about Boris but about their own business. Yeah. How do we get that right? The the the, the level of truth in the story that we're telling uh, both internally in our business and to our stakeholders. Where do we get the Balance right. I think. Well, look. The 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 starting point is most people. In fact, all people respect honesty, straightforwardness, openness, truthfulness. So nothing you can say cannot be true. You know, business say we're all okay. Don't worry. Just carry on working. Then they go bust the next day, or they 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 say, oh no, sorry, we were wrong. We have to now sack half the staff. You've lost every all credibility, even those that stay don't trust you anymore, right? So being honest, truthful, straightforward, you, you, coming back to your question you asked me earlier, anything you say must be true. Anything you communicate must be true. I would urge anyone I'm working with to be as open and honest as possible. And if we look at the difficult truths, how can we communicate this in a way? I mean, if you're, if you're not doing the right thing, then that's a different question. But if you're making decisions based on the right reasons, but they're tough decisions, then you need to be able to communicate that effectively as well. And also think about how you're going to communicate it. Then it comes it comes back to this question of how. So there was that classic story, I think it was last year or the year before, of the guy who put out a Christmas message to all of his staff, American, and said, by the way, if you're getting this message, you probably haven't got a job anymore because unfortunately we're having to lay people off happy Christmas. And the other people got a different message. I mean, you know, amazing, amazing destruction of trust. So how you communicate is going to affect the the power of what you do, the, the, the way it lands. So uh, uh, we're very keen uh, in this series to uh, offer practical and actionable uh, tips and ideas and things that uh, people can do straight away. So I'm going to ask you that uh, as a way of bringing our conversation to a close. But I'm going to ask you a cheeky and I think probably deeply unfair question. And the Dude, question I love is, unfair questions. I ask them all the time, Robert. So why shouldn't I receive it? Be as unfair and as cheeky as you like. I love it. So my unfair question to you, Stuart, is which at the end of the day is more important, story or trust? That's really unfair, Robert. <laughs> um, okay, I, I'm not going to be one of those say, of course, they're both important. Because, oh, of course they are. That's nonsense. It's not an answer to your question. I go back to Yuval Harari. The story is the foundation of your reality. The story defines your reality. So in your story is going to be stuff that's designed to build trust as well as other things too. Trust is a dimension to your story. So the story is the, is the foundation of everything. Beautiful. I love. I love the fact that you answered it, and I, and and I deeply respect your callback to uh, the start of our conversation. So, some takeaways. Yeah. Um, talk, talk to us first. We'll come to teams and um, businesses second. But what can an individual? If I'm listening to this now, I've liked what you've said. What can I do um, that will change the way I live my life and um, that will enhance how I function at work? So let's start with your, if, you, if you're talking to an individual, or even if this would work for a team, actually. The question, again, I come back to is, what do you, what do you want people to say about you when you're not in the room? Okay. So starting with the people that matter most to you, that you serve as an individual, the people that, that, that you're trying to build that reputation, that story with. And... Think about them, why they engage with you, what value looks like for them. By the way, this works in personal relationships too. You could think about this in terms of your your wife or partner or husband or partner in exactly the same way, but we're talking about business here. 
She'd rather not be talking about me when <laughs> Why I'm. Why does she engage with you? Yeah, okay, let's yeah. not let's not ask that oh, question now. Oh, Robert. Oh. <laughs> but what value? But you know, in business terms, and obviously the words you might use with your wife might be different. But why do they engage with you? What matters to them? And how do you meet that need? And describe it. Describe it really clearly. Get to the essence of it. The fundamental reason they're engaging with you, and the outcome that they need to achieve. And then, secondly, look at how do we super, what are we great at when we do this? When we're great at this with the right people, what what does that look like? And then how can we make that even more true and describe it very clearly? Just answer those two questions fundamentally. It's a great discussion for a team. It's a great discussion for an individual leader being coached because if you can really articulate that and then make that consistently true and come back to that as a reference point, you won't go far wrong. And lastly then, and you mentioned a great discussion for a team, I'm uh, doing what you've just said um, for myself as an individual, but I've got a team meeting coming up. Yeah. So what can I do as a leader of a team or ev- even as a, a member of a team that would open up this conversation and the possibilities that you've beautifully uh, painted for us today? Can I separate this into strategic and day-to-day? So strategically, I made a point earlier that the way in which this team delivers whatever it's there to do will depend partly on its capabilities as a, you know, technical capabilities, but secondly, on the relationships between the members of the team and the, and the people they serve. So let's focus on relationship. Identify the behaviours that you see you want to consistently demonstrate. We, we, in our book, we set out five principles of behaviour, which I, you know, I won't go into now, but, but they're all the things you might expect, honesty, courage, trust, you know, um, openness and so on. So, but set out the principles that matter, the, the behaviours you want to consistently demonstrate. Discuss them. And then do a really simple table, a red and a green. Things we will now stop doing that are inconsistent with this behaviour that we do. Things that we will now do that are consistent with this behaviour that we do. And then you've got a kind of a charter for behaviours in the team to build trust. On a day-to-day basis, the, the weekly team meeting, spend some time not just talking about all the tasks you've got to perform, who's doing what, but on the relationship. Just make sure you spend some time consistently and maybe even quarterly take some time out just to discuss the way we're working together. Are we being consistent with these behaviours we identified? Where are we not? What are the alarm bells? What are people unhappy with? As re- Just on relationship, not on delivery, because it's going to affect the way you deliver. Stuart, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you today. Thank you so much for coming in. And I hope when uh, the book is out, the Choose Trust book that you're writing for The Economist, I hope you'll come and talk about that and what you've learned and what we need to understand about trust. I would love to do so. Robert, thank you so much. The narrative arcing Stuart Maester. Thanks to him for his time today. You've been listening to Highly Relational. Check out the show notes for more information about today's guest and the topics covered. Give us a like, rate and subscribe wherever you're listening. I'd like to thank today's studio manager at VoxPod, Alex Bennett. Our researcher is Ella Halsell and the series producer is Ollie Giu. I'm Robert Diggings. Thanks for listening and goodbye.